0: What's up, Elrod? How you doing?
1: Happy Tuesday.
0: Yeah, we're back from Princeton, New Jersey, where we did that great conference with Chef. It was so fun.
1: It was so great.
0: Uh, And uh, we are uh, very pleased to have on the electables today Simone Sanders, who is a top advisor to Vice President Biden's campaign. You see her on TV, I'm sure, pretty pretty on a daily basis. She was a CNN uh, contributor. She was also a... uh, uh, top spokeswoman for Bernie Sanders in twenty sixteen. Uh, Simone, welcome to the electables. this we've been dying to have you, and we're so glad you were able to uh, to jump on the show with us today.
2: Thank y'all for having me. My pleasure.
0: So Simone, let's kick it off. I'd love to know how how'd you get your start in politics?
2: Um in local government working for my mayor my then mayor mayor jim Sutton. so i'm from omaha nebraska that's why i went to college at craig university go blue jays
0: and <laughs> while i
2: was one of my like many internships and in undergrad i had about 10 internships and one of them was at the mayor's office and while i was working at the mayor's office in the comms department the communications department they tried to recall the mayor and so if folks don't really think about a recall election you have to have two elections one, if the municipality or the county or whatever, um, if they actually want the recall election to happen. And then if they vote yes on that, then another election to say if they actually want, you know, said election, elected official recalls. So I went to go volunteer on the effort on, the, on behalf of the mayor to beat the recall. And I met these um, two guys, uh, Chris Smith and, and Robert West. And they owned this firm at the time called Little Smith Strategies out of Tennessee. And they were one of the folks the consultants if you will uh, that the mayor's campaign brought in to help them turn up turnout on this ballot initiative on this initiative if you will in north and south omaha which are predominantly african-american and latino parts of the city and so i just did whatever they wanted me to do i got coffee i got to sit in on meetings you know i knew a lot of people my mom was really involved in the community so if they needed like a meeting space i would give suggestions and after Um, you know, we beat the effort to beat the recall, but the mayor did lose election two years later because the writing was on the wall if they're trying to recall you. Uh, But after that, they let me continue to work with them. So I worked all these other jobs and internships, but they still let me work with them remotely. So I would do copy editing for them. Sometimes they would let me come and sit in on the candidate consultations they would do. I would like take the notes. So I have done stuff on reservations. I worked on judges races. It's the first time I realized judges were elected in some places and not appointed. I did say legislative stuff. So that's where I really um, got interested in politics. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I like this.
1: And Simone, I think that's important for you to um, share with our listeners, because I think a lot of people out there just think, oh, you know, I've got to get on a presidential campaign immediately after college, you know, this is I've got to go straight to like the big, the big leagues. And I think it's important for folks to know that some of the best experiences you get, certainly some of the best experiences that that I've had have been working on state and local races, sort of what we call the small potatoes. But when I was in Arkansas in 2002, uh, working for the state party, I really got to know um, and understand everything from, you know, how state legislative races work to, um, you know, how constitutional officers run for office. I mean, it's a very in- interesting, um, you know, way of looking at politics. And it also really gives you this foundational aspect that you can carry forward um, in your career.
2: I, I agree. I mean, look, Adrian, Doug, y'all know, like, The local, my favorite races have been state legislative races, or I worked actually right after I graduated. I was a community organizer because it was cool um, because Obama, everybody wanted to be a community Mm -hmm. organizer. I graduated in 2013 Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I was a community organizer for this nonprofit, uh, but a governor's race was coming up in Nebraska and so I actually left the nonprofit and I went and I worked at Governor's Race in twenty fourteen in Nebraska, a very red place. And I was the deputy communications director there.
0: Mm-hmm. I started off
2: as the coms assistant and then they promoted me in two months to the deputy communications director. So no I ran surprise. our race. I traveled all across the state with the candidate. Um we were a small campaign, so we would have to drive. And I would often like be the one staffing him and driving him. So it was an amazing uh experience, but you know, frankly, I realized I wanted to work in national politics and I realized I was not going to work in national politics, let alone on the Hill, you know, working races in Nebraska. It's not the, the bluest place on Earth. <laughs> 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 not yet, at least. So Precisely. Uh, at the end of that. Not yet. You know, we I'm hopeful. Look, I'm from uh, dis- Congressional District 2 that gave Obama that blue dot. And yes. okay. We, we 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 can. Yes, we can. And we will again. <laughs> So I left after after I worked at governor's race in 2014, I went and I moved to D.C. And my first job was for Public Citizen's Global Trade Watch. I worked in the Global Trade Division and Public Citizen is a consumer advocacy think tank, very progressive. Um, The division I worked for was actually, interestingly enough, on the opposite side of the Obama-Biden administration. So we did progressive trade policy. And in some respects, we were on the opposite side. In some places we lined up and I did that. I knew nothing about trade. But I took the job because I interviewed at a bunch of other places, like my mentors were flying me out to do these interviews. I was using my friends uh, who lived in D.C., their address on my resume so people would actually <laughs> give me a look like it was crazy. And I interviewed all these other places and they told me I didn't have any technical writing experience. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, not education and not what you were <laughs> doing in the community organizing. So it was actually Maxine Waters. She really liked me. I wanted to be her her press person on the committee on financial services in the minority when we were in the minority. Mm-hmm. And her chief of staff at the time was like, your energy is great. I love you. But you need some technical writing experience. <laughs>
1: so well, I, I bet they'd hire you now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think Twan might wanna might wanna revisit if I might wanna come on over to the hill. At <laughs> well, this
1: point. right, but you're you're doing more important work at this moment. So then, Simone, after you worked in, on on um, some state and local races, tell us what you did in 2014. Obviously, going into 2015, which we know, but tell us about your path from there to Bernie Sanders. Well, while I was working at the Consumer Advocacy Think Tank,
2: it was really hard because I didn't know anything about trade, and I just moved to DC. I knew. A like two people. I was living in a very terrible apartment in, mm-hmm. um, like in the in the boonies of Maryland, down the street from the New Carrollton Mar- <laughs> like metro station.
1: It was raggedy, y'all. Okay, I you know expensive. those are there. the best stories I've though. Been there. They're the best stories. Okay. Fishing through the couch for
0: change so that you can get some lunch. Mm. Yeah, that's what I did. Mm. For, yep,
2: eating those hot dogs off the um, yeah. the, the corners because that's all I had. <laughs> yes, exactly. But. The trade stuff was interesting to me, and I really did learn a lot. Lori Wallach was my boss, and I, I think she's really amazing, super smart, very tough boss, but I learned a lot from her. But I realized that um my passion was in, like, direct politics work, not issue-based advocacy work. Like, I wanted to be able to say Democrats and Republicans, and you can't, you can't do that in the issue-based advocacy work world. You work with folks that align on the issues, and I really wanted to do – like electoral politics work. So I started going on interviews and I went on 27 interviews and nobody hired me. I interviewed everywhere. If there is a committee in Washington, D.C. for the Democrats, I interviewed and they didn't want me. Um, And I kid you not, though, three days after my 27th interview, I got a cold call from Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders, campaign manager in 2016. And uh, he said, I got your resume from so-and-so and and I did not know who so-and-so was. And he said, I just want to know if you want to come work for us. And I'm like, who is this? Hello? (laughs) What are you talking about? It was very random, but I ended up going to meet with Jeff a couple days later. um, And then he said he wanted to introduce me to the communications director to have a chat with him. So I met the comms director maybe three weeks after that. And then I didn't hear anything. And I was like, okay, maybe they don't want to hire me either. And in the span of that time, and I mean, this was like May, June-ish, where I first started talking to the Sanders campaign in 2015. And in the span of... in in the in the span of talking to the comms director and then still not hearing anything, netroots happened, and as folks remember, netroots was when Senator Sanders was first interrupted by activists. And I thought, I kid you guys not, I was like, oh, maybe I don't want to work there. Maybe they have a black people problem. Like that was the thought that I had in my head. So um, I ended up, you know, I was on the hill one day. I was a juvenile justice advocate, and I was taking my um, young people around the hill advocating for the reauthorization of the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act. And I got another cold call on my cell phone. And it was someone from Senator Sanders' office saying he wanted to meet me today. And I was like, I am only available until four. And I will not be available again until after 7.45. So if the senator is available, great. If not, I will catch him the next time. Because I had been on so many interviews, I did not have the bandwidth. And it was 2.30 at this time, y'all. So like, it's it's like, what? It's 2.30. So I can only come at four.
0: Mm -hmm. And so forth.
2: So um, they end up saying they call me back and they say, come right now. So I go and I meet Senator Sanders in one of his offices and we have a really engaging conversation. We talk about everything. I ask all the questions I wanted to ask. We ended up getting an argument. (laughs) 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 Our usual. We got an argument about um, the economy and and actually race and just kind of the framing. And Bernie's favorite thing to tell people is that uh, they have a fundamental misunderstanding. And he told me I had a fundamental misunderstanding in that meeting. And I said, well, sir, I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what I'm talking about. So we engaged in a little argument. I'm like, I'm definitely not getting this job now. But we reconciled at the end. And uh, he said he wanted me to work there. And then he asked me what it is I wanted to do. And no other interview had ever asked me that. And I was like, I want to be the national press secretary. I want to do cable television. I want to have a hand in um, the meat of the strategy, just like we're discussing here that's what I want to do. And he kind of looked at me and he was like, uh, have you ever done cable television before? I said, no, sir. <laughs> but I do believe I would be very good at it. And I left the office and that was a Thursday. And Tuesday, Jeff Weaver called me back and said I was working there. That's literally how I got my job. John, um, the poster, John De La Volpe, the poster at, at Harvard um, in the Institute of Politics says that that's the most millennial story he's ever heard.
0: <laughs> but that's how I got my job. I, you know, I love talking to folks uh, about how they ended up where they are because they, everyone has their own unique story. And it's uh, and and oftentimes it's, you know, it, it's not linear. It's just a, a couple random things that happen that get you to where you are. And you've got to take mm-hmm. uh, you've got to make some you've got to take advantage of opportunity, take take some risks, but obviously make take advantage of those moments that you that you have. So um, I'm going to I, I, I want to skip to, uh, 2020, uh, where you are now currently, um, the, uh, top spokesman for, um, Vice President Biden's campaign. Uh, before we get into the sort of, the campaign and strategy and looking forward. I'm just curious. You obviously are now working for Biden. You worked for Sanders in 2016. Sanders is running now again. What's that dynamic like? I mean, how does that, how is that for you? It's it, I, it's unique. I mean, I, I don't, I, I imagine that there are probably not a lot of people who have been, you know, you did this for Sanders in 16. Now you're doing a, a similar role, probably at a much, you know, elevated strategic level though for uh, Biden. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I am super excited to be on Team Joe this time around. I am one of Vice President Biden's senior advisors, and I also serve in a spokesperson capacity. And people often, they regularly ask me, Doug, they're like, how'd you get over there? And I would just say, you know, I'm very proud. You know, they're like, hey, this hmm. is interesting. And I'm like, hmm, very interesting. I'm I'm excited about the work. And I'll I'll say, you know, I am, one, very proud of the work that I did in 2016. I am proud of the movement that um, I helped build with the Sanders campaign. And if I could do it all over again, I would do it exactly the same way I did it. Maybe maybe a little better, but, like, I would not make a different decision. Um, But I just thought, as I was, you know, y'all said I used to be a CNN political commentator. And um, in January, I was sitting on a panel on Jake Tapper's show and we were on CNN and we were discussing, they said we were going to discuss 2020. And I don't remember what the specific topic was that we were talking about, but I do remember that when that panel was over, all I could think about was is that I did not want to spend the rest of this cycle pontificating about, you know, some of the work that other people were doing that I actually wanted to get out there and like be on the campaign trail. And I didn't think I was going to feel that way, but I really wanted to get out there and, I, you know, happen to know a number of the people running for president this go around. Um I worked for Senator Sanders last time, but, you know, I know Senator Harris. I know. I know Senator Booker. I know Senator Gillibrand, who's no longer in the race. Um, but it was actually Cedric Richmond that would regularly call me and ask me about Joe Biden. And Cedric Richmond, Congressman Richmond, former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, is actually uh, our campaign co-chair here at the Biden campaign. And Cedric Richmond and I are really close. He's a really great mentor of mine. And, you know, I said, I was like, you know, I'm sure that there are a number of people that, you know, would want to work over there. I don't know Vice President Biden personally. He seems like a great man. But I want to, you know, go somewhere where um, I know my voice will be but where I also have a relationship. And I just frankly didn't have a relationship with Vice President Biden. But I will tell you, the day that I, the first time that I sat down and met with him, um, it was only supposed to be 30 minutes. And we ended up t- staying together for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where I was like, "Sir, I have a meeting that I actually that really just finish. doesn't surprise
0: like, me about Biden, though. You know, like I feel like he's the kind right, of guy. He's,
2: so, I, he's engaging, yeah. Right? Like,
0: tell us a little bit he, about we him.
2: We talked for hours.
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit about Joe Biden. The uh, you know the guy.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would just say what drew me to Vice President Biden, like in the course of that conversation, was one his candidness, his frankness. I think is was what draws a lot of voters to him um from what i've seen in the campaign trail people say he's authentic and they feel like he's like a regular person and you would think a former vice president of the united states of america um is someone you can't necessarily identify with but joe biden makes you feel at home and i think that's what made me so comfortable but the second thing was it it dawned on me that he has this you know really great personal story um that people don't know and so he he told me about you know how when he first Decided to run for Senate. He was 29 years old and I'm 29 actually right now. And I don't think he knew that when we were sitting, when we were sitting there and he was telling me the story. He said he ran against an incumbent and all these people told him, um, were telling him he shouldn't be doing it. They wondered if he had the ability to get it done. They said he was too young. And we just kind of talked about, you know, how it is to be a young person that wants to contribute. They want to get something done and people are doubting you. And it dawned on me that he can identify frankly with a lot of young people right now. That are are standing up in different ways, making their voices heard, um, but also are being challenged by some not so young folks that are telling them they need to sit down, and wait their turn, maybe not right now, and and don't understand that their voices should be valued in the same way. I think Vice President Biden gets that, and so we had a really engaging conversation about that. But I'll tell you, it was the abuse of power stuff that um, really spoke to me. In that, you know, I asked him why he was running for president, and he said that he wouldn't be running. If Donald Trump wasn't in office. And I was like, tell me more about that. (laughs) And he basically said that, um, his father and his, and his mother used to always instill in him that an abuse of power was one of the most egregious and grotesque things that someone can engage in. And he, he, he actually told me that's why he authored the Violence Against Women Act because not because he knew someone personally who had been abused and like a woman in his life. Um, but that domestic violence is a form of an abuse of power and you cannot let that go unchecked. And so that was absolutely part of it. And then he also talked a little bit about, you know, those, those, those infamous um, Clarence Thomas trials. And that also led to, you know, him wanting to, you know, do something about this abuse of power. And that's why he ended up offering VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. So he said, it's the same thing for him right now that he didn't want to sit back and think what if he would have ran for president, that he wanted to do everything he could to check this power. And I was like, that's not like me, except I'm not trying to run for president. I'm trying to help somebody run for president. <laughs> so we engaged in a number of different, like really great conversations. And I just, I felt really good about it. And and I'm somebody that believes like, look, you got to go with your gut. Because I remember in 2016, there were all these people telling me to do all these different things. And I with my gut. I think it worked out for me post 2016. I have had you know, have to go with your gut. Conversations with myself, and I had to go with my gut conversation um, at the beginning of this year. And my gut told me that you know, going with Joe Biden was, was, is what I should really do. And it's been it's been fun. It's been difficult. <laughs> we take a lot of incoming every day, but I can tell you, we are having fun, and I have a great respect and admiration for the VP, and we have a good relationship. We well, like
1: to we like to joke around. I try to keep it keep it fun out here. Okay that's important to have fun on the campaign trail. That's for sure. Yeah, we're both Doug and I are both big fans of the vice president and um, are obviously, um, you know, talk a lot about the campaign and, and how well he's doing. Um, and how you know, I call I think Doug actually is the one who came up with the term Dura Joe. Which Dura I think Biden. Is, oh, sorry. Dura Biden. Dura durable
0: Biden. plus Biden. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that no matter what's thrown at him, he seems to, he, he seems to just stay um, durable in the polls. So Simone, we got we are 15 weeks away from Iowa. I think yesterday was the official 15-week um, mark, even though, of course, the Iowa Coxes are on Tuesday, which is today. Um, but tell us about your ground game in Iowa. How do you feel about things? Do you guys feel... Um, I mean, you know, clearly the, the vice president's doing very well in Iowa. He's doing very well. And also the other early states, South Carolina, most importantly um, for him. But tell us a little bit about, I guess, maybe not just Iowa, but your first four states, how you guys feel um, and what the next what we should expect over the next 15 weeks before now between now and the Iowa caucuses.
2: Well, you all can expect to see uh, a lot of Joe Biden all over, not just these first four states, but also a lot of states that um, are holding elections on Super Tuesday with the streets call the SEC primary. We um, are of the belief that, one, that this primary is going to be a fight. And I think what you've seen in the polls tightening over the last couple of weeks is that it's true. Now, we have always said from the beginning that this is going to be a fight, it's going to be a dogfight we are playing to win. And I don't know if folks really believed us. So as soon as the polls tightened, you know, some of the reporters wanted to try to write our obituary or say that we're in trouble. And this is what we predicted would happen. Uh, we believe that the, the whoever the Democratic nominee will be, and we believe it will be Joe Biden, is going to have to be tested and is going to have to fight to be that nominee. And the fight is currently ensuing and it's only going to get hotter. And so we think actually that this contest won't be over. In Iowa, and it won't be over in New Hampshire. That this is a uh, this primary is something that's going to run well into uh, Super Tuesday and deep into March, probably. We were just in Ohio for the debate. Ohio um, votes March seventeenth. And we think Ohio is going to be important in the Democratic primary. So our strategy is to really put the candidates time and our additional campaign resources into our first four operations in innovative ways. But also we need to we need to make sure we have bodies to knock doors to talk to folks. And um, we think that Joe Biden, in terms of his time, he is the best retail politician in America. And we are ensuring that he has that opportunity and the ability to showcase that so when you see us in iowa oftentimes there'll be shots of him uh in a diner or in a restaurant or out in the house parties same thing in new hampshire when we're in south carolina and nevada we do a lot of round tables he just likes to go where the, to where the people are and talk to him we have to let joe biden be joe biden do, do some town halls where he can answer questions And so we that's where we've seen success that's what's going to carry us through to you know all the way to that Democratic convention.
0: And hey, Simone, are you on the road with the with the VP, or do you spend time at the headquarters, or both?
2: I am on the road so much. I told somebody the other day, I live on the tarmac. Mm-hmm. I live where they said, where do I live? I said the tarmac, DC and Philadelphia. So our campaign, campaign headquarters is in Philadelphia. I'm actually in Philly right now today. Um, so I would say I spend about 60% of my time traveling and of that 60% travel, 50% of that travel is with the VP and then I do 10% travel that is not with him. So sometimes I'm doing finance things. Sometimes I'm doing, um, other surrogate things. I was just in Alabama this past weekend at the Alabama democratic conference where I went and addressed the conference and took questions. They put me in the hot seat, but it was all good. Um, so I do a bunch of things uh, like that. So I, I travel a lot. And then I also still have my place in D.C. because I come back there every now and then. You know, we all got to sometimes they want you on set. Y'all know how it is. You got to hit the cable news and you got to be on set in the D.C. studio. So I do some of that, too.
0: What's it like I, to be on the road in the role that you're playing where you're you constantly have to be on? You need to, you know, fo- you need to be following the news. You need to be ahead of the news. Um you know, I did that job in two thousand four with dean um Adrian's been on road for candidates before uh it's 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 a it's a it's a really i don't think people understand how hard it is where to juggle both like you know managing the reporters that you're that are you know part of your press corps with also you know communicating with. Philadelphia and the campaign and headquarters, and also being an advocate for the candidate. Um, but just talk to us a little bit about being a traveling press secretary.
2: And also having the answers to the random questions. Yeah, that absolutely. That you the, may not actually know, right? Anybody on the traveling team will ask. It's just crazy. Yeah. So I have, I guess this, this going around, I have the luxury of being, when you're the senior advisor, you're not necessarily in charge. I mean, there are some things I'm in charge of, but on the road. Um, I have a really great relationship and we have a really amazing traveling press secretary. Her name is Remy. And me and Remy work really, really well together. And so, like, it's Remy's job to actually write the briefings. And so, a, a lot of times we brief him together on the road. But, like, it, it's Remy that's up in the morning, just like read. She's got this notebook where she has all, where she writes down literally everything. And I'm like, well, Remy, did you catch this? And, you know, I don't have to do the nitty gritty of typing up typing up the briefing over senior advisor privileges um but because <laughs> i don't have to type up the briefing there are all these other things i have to be responsible for and so i um advise in our communications in a communications capacity but capacity but also on our political side and our outreach and so when we're going places oftentimes like i've helped work i worked with the state team or for somewhere where we don't have a state team i've worked with our political team to put the event together so if it's a round table if it is a a meet and greet. Sometimes it's a, like a mini coordinated town hall This with like a small group. So sometimes I actually, uh, am in charge of like moderating the roundtables with the vice president. And so we have to brief him on who's in the room. Uh, what are, what are our political priorities going in and coming out of this? You know, are we looking for endorsements? Is this just, is this us, um, touching base with folks because we hadn't necessarily been here before? So those are some things that i'm in charge of in addition to um you know we got gaggles that we do and so working with remy and also our uh, uh, our communications team back at headquarters to make sure we're all on the same page like did something happen while we were on the road that we haven't seen i remember we were in south carolina maybe it was a month ago now and that infamous um not in a positive way that infamous washington post story that matt visor wrote about uh the story that the vp had been telling about pinning a medal on a soldier Mm -hmm. um that visor basically asserted that like the story wasn't true now with more reporting and whatnot and and our press team doing excellent work the story is true uh he, he, the essence right. of the story was absolutely true, but that story broke while the VP was doing a town hall in South Carolina. And so, as soon as it broke, like right as he was on the rope line, he wrote lines for forty five minutes, and then we were going into local interviews. And then that day, actually, he recorded a podcast with Jonathan Capehart, who was right after the local interviews. He hadn't had a chance. Like the story is breaking, so it is. We're on the phone with the comms folks back. Um, in in philly like making sure one we all have the details right on what the reporter is saying that the vice president said and then we need to go back and say well what story is he talking about so we're getting all this done while he's rope lining and then we have to prep him for these local interviews and then we also have to tell him that this happened and then we also have to so like that is just and that's just one afternoon where we still have other places to go and do things so it's crazy but it's it's also fun but it is When you're on the road, it's kind of like, you all know it's your own, it's your own bubble. Being on the road is very different than being at at headquarters or even when I'm doing like my own surrogate travel. Yeah, it's just different. You are totally consumed by what's happening. The road is sometimes its own mini campaign, which is why it's really important to have folks on the road who are, um, skilled and and with communication back to HQ, because if if the people on the road aren't communicating what is literally happening in real time, the people in HQ uh, don't know how to respond or, or what is really going on. We run a really aggressive press shop, but it's only as aggressive as it is because we have great communication with our road team. But it's
1: crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. Well, Simone, we, we, we need to wrap up here, but we just have, because we don't want to take up much more of your time, but we have one more question, which I think our audience members will definitely want to know about, which is... Donald Trump and his relentless obsession with Vice President Biden. Um, Obviously, he knows that Vice President Biden could beat him in a general election matchup, which is why he's been, um, you know, so fervently talking about him and whatnot. But I mean, give us a, you know, give us a short and sweet synopsis of, of where you think things stand right now um, with, you know, obviously impeachment is is sort of, is, is essentially evolved from um, the, the president's attacks, but even taking your campaign staffer hat off and going back to your CNN commentator analyst position, just give us your thoughts. So what are you hearing on the road um, from people? And just as an analyst, what do you think about... Um, what do you think the next few months are going to be, look like in Congress when it comes to impeaching Trump?
2: If I were to put my analyst hat on, I would say that, um, well, one, 2020 candidates have like they have a job to do, much like candidates who are on the ballot in the midterm elections had a job to do. Okay. And that job is to constantly and regularly communicate that message of the issues to voters across the country and uh, do not, and not to let an impeachment conversation consume their campaigns and what they are saying on the road, even though, because impeachment is on television every single day, every single day, something is happening as it relates to the impeachment inquiry and house Democrats and Democrats in Congress in general are dealing with that daily daily drumbeat of the hearings to what the president is saying. But 2020 candidates cannot let this consume them because in 2018, Democrats, contrary to what the Republicans said, Democrats didn't run on impeachment. They ran on health care. They also didn't run on like the crazy stuff Donald Trump was saying or doing at the border. They ran on health care. And health care is still the most salient point for folks uh, across the country. But there are also some real foreign policy concerns that voters now have, specifically in places like um new hampshire or even virginia which is a super tuesday state given the uh given the 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 large military um family presence in places like that and so campaigns will also have to be able to speak directly to that um what i'll say specifically on vice president biden is that it's an interesting um line to walk right because uh who knew that a lot of like the reason Donald Trump is in his is the reason Donald Trump has encapsulated himself into this scandal, it's a scandal of his own making is for one of all of the things that he he's doing around asking foreign governments to interfere in the election on his behalf. Well, he's asking those foreign governments, these foreign nations to investigate his political opponent, Joe Biden. And so every single time you talk about what Donald Trump has done on the news, people are also mentioning um, Vice President Biden. And so that is not something our campaign can or or has ignored. We have effectively, in my opinion, beat back this Smear campaign that the Trump campaign and the White House have tried to wage against Vice President Biden and his family, but Vice President Biden also has continued to go out there and talk about the issues. And so you got to do your healthcare rollouts. You have to roll out your policy plans. He rolled out um, a very ro- the most robust policies for HBCUs and minority-serving institutions um, about a week and a half ago. We've done gun policy. We've done health care. We're doing some additional policy rollouts in the coming week and a half. And so we have to continue to do that hand to hand combat every single day on what um, and draw contrast against the, the president. But we also have to put forth a vision. And if the only thing we talk about is impeachment, I think it would be to our detriment. And so that's something our campaign is really aware of. But I think it's frankly something all campaigns have to be aware of because you cannot let Donald Trump dictates the news cycle. If you play his game, you are playing to lose. And the Biden campaign, we're not going to play Donald Trump's game.
1: No, yeah, you're exactly right, Simone. And I thank you for that reminder, because if candidates who are running in 2020 focus only on impeachment, then we are in big trouble and Americans are voting on kitchen table issues and how to improve their lives, not on impeachment. Simone Sanders, thank you so the much great for Simone joining
0: Sanders, us. Uh, just fantastic having you. Thank you so much. And uh, take Thank care of yourself you, on the road. Make sure you've got some zinc. Absolutely. Yeah, and, Take uh, your vitamin C. You gotta yeah. vitamin C. You've got to get the vitamin C
1: and D. Okay? Don't let it, don't let it happen to you.
0: That's no. not right. sick on the road. You, know? <laughs>
1: That's you right. do not. I got sick last week. I lost my voice. So um, I, I know the feeling and you can't get sick.
0: And we'll have you on again, hopefully maybe right before Iowa.
1: Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks Simone. Simone. Good luck out there. Bye. Bye.
0: For my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, I'm Doug Thornell. That was uh, the great Simone Sanders. And uh, this has been uh, The Electables. We will catch you next time.